Article 6, Noah's New World, by Pastor Dan Gaiman. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. From 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. When Noah and his family disembarked from the ark, imagine the whole new world that they faced. The patriarch Noah and his family, as well as all surviving creatures, disembarked from their huge ark of safety after their 370 days aboard the largest boat ever to have been built at that point in time. What must Noah and his family have thought as they finally touched firm, steady, dry ground? They were the only survivors of the most catastrophic event ever to have occurred since the creation of the world. For a brief moment, put yourself in Noah's shoes, and imagine how they must have felt after being aboard the ark more than one year in horribly turbulent seas, dodging volcanoes and Earth's tremendous and violent upheavals. Planet Earth had been completely depopulated, except for the survivors aboard the ark. Imagine the apprehension that Noah must have felt. What were some of the changes they witnessed and had to adapt to after the flood? Although the Genesis account does give us a direct account of the divine instruction God gave Noah after the flood, the Bible record is so brief that it really pushes one to have to imagine what earth must have been like. Or, better yet, over time, one may have to study the numberless clues left behind. Scientists, unite! Step forward, apply your God-given talents, and let the earth speak. What is almost as incredible as the Genesis flood itself is the failure of multiplied generations of Bible readers to thoroughly contemplate and appreciate the fact that the Genesis record of the flood occupies more connected verses of Scripture from Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, altogether some 80 seen verses than any other isolated event in biblical chronology. Divine Instructions for Noah After the Global Flood Adam's kind, new world, demanded a fresh set of instructions. But, never fear, Jehovah did not leave Noah high and dry. Regarding his future plans, from Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, records this, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. Faith and lifestyle were one shared vision. Although faith and lifestyle were one shared vision for Noah and his family in the new world, the spiritual and moral ethics remained unchanged. Noah and his family continued to worship Jehovah as the one true supreme creator of the universe. To this sovereign God, Noah and his family vested all trust and promise for their future. During the long stay on the ark, Noah and his family must have learned to trust in God and build faith above and beyond all we can imagine. Having survived the great deluge aboard the ark for 370 days, Noah and his family had become hardened soldiers indeed. They had survived the most cataclysmic and dramatic experience anyone could. God left explicit instructions for Noah and his family, and we'll get to those soon, but please think about this. These instructions merged with their faith and trust in Jehovah and should remind us of something that is of a tremendous importance for every Christian. We cannot be called a practicing Christian 
unless or until our lifestyle matches our belief in God's word. No, we cannot in good conscience believe we are pleasing God if we have compromised our lifestyle. Our faith and our lifestyle must be one. Our lives should reflect our belief system. Christianity is more than simple belief in Jesus Christ, that he exists and is divine. The life of a believer must conform to God's word. Christianity is faith, belief, lifestyle, commitment, and obedience to God's holy word. Without a relationship with him, we are nothing. We are barren. To the extent that we marginalize or diminish the Bible's instructions, we are less than what we ought to be. You see, I can claim to be a Christian, but if my lifestyle does not reflect my Christian values, I'm not fooling God or anyone else, for that matter. I will be called out by the world and be certain that God knows every thought and intent of our hearts. So, consider now the lifestyle that God set before Noah as part of Jehovah's instruction for new life in the new world. How closely do we today resemble and emulate this lifestyle that Jehovah gave Noah and his family? Should our unchanging God's lifestyle requirements not remain the same for us today? Do we walk in observance of the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do we keep the world's holidays or God's holy festivals, such as the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, the Day of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement and Tabernacles? Noah was given the same set of instructions that Adam received in Genesis 1.28. Noah's sons were to be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth, not unlike the command given in Genesis 1.28 at the dawn of creation. The command for the multiplication of children remained key to taking dominion of the earth after the flood. Our Creator's plan particularly commanded that Adam kind through Noah and the generations following him would maintain a perfect pedigree back to Adam and Eve. And do not be swayed into believing that Noah's sons aboard the ark did not share his pedigree. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were white people from the same Caucasian family. The repetitious command of kind after his kind, first given to Adam, and then the generations following him, remained applicable to Noah and his sons and their children. The call to be fruitful, multiply, and fill up the earth, and exercise dominion of the earth, is significant. In Genesis 9 verse 1 and 2, God commanded the multiplication of children, not the mere addition. Without multiplication of children in this fallen world, a population can barely survive. Consider the multitude of ways in which the lives of children could be halted through gestation, birth, and childhood. Beyond childhood, humans face numerous hurdles such as illness, plagues, injuries, more plagues, wars, and accidents. It's difficult for a population to sustain itself and expand without a minimum of four siblings per family. Multiplication of children requires a family. Men had to determine what their life vision entailed regarding work, and then do that by the sweat of their brow, so they could marry and provide for their wife and children in the family, the most basic unit of government. This was God's original design before the flood, and it remained so after. Man was to take dominion of the earth this way. Moreover, marriage and children demand a certain spiritual and moral focus to keep a biblical civilization from losing its focus and growth. Furthermore, the local church serves as an indispensable element in the development, growth, and perpetuation of any civilized people. 
If any of these important institutions fail, the entire structure of society is in peril. Thus, what was true for Noah's day remains in our instructions for life as well. It is absolutely essential that young men and women of our covenant lineage share a mutual worldview about children. It's imperative that a husband and his wife mutually embrace the same vision about the number of children, their training, discipline, and education. Prospective husbands and wives should agree about the number of children and God's role in the determination of when and how many children a family should embrace. Repopulating the Post-Flood World The long-standing view within mainstream Christianity that, from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the entire earth was populated, is simply not biblical. It is quite a stretch to believe that a white man and woman sharing the same DNA were the fountainhead of all the separate and distinct races of the earth. In fact, that progressive heresy is rank evolutionary humanism. Remember that our Jehovah Elohim created distinct races from the beginning and enumerated the law of kind after his kind ten times in Genesis chapter 1. Our God was making an obvious point. Any mixing of the races was not part of his original design. There is no biblical authority that supports it. Every separate race is to reproduce within its own kind, period. Genesis 5 verses 1 and 2 declares this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam and in the day when they were created. These verses unite the language of Genesis 1 and 2. The author of creation and the Bible declared that he made Adam kind in his own image. No other part or form of creation was made in God's image, period. For evidence, please look up the word man in these passages of Scripture. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Genesis 2, verse 5, and verse 7 through 8, and chapter 15, and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. What you'll find in these is this. The word man in the foregoing verses is of Hebraic origin and references Adam in Genesis 1, 2, and 5. The words Adam and man in the above citations are from Strong's Exhaustive Concordance to the Bible. Adam, number 119, pronounced Adam, means to show blood in the face, flush, or turn rosy. Ruddy. Adam, number 120, pronounced Adam, means ruddy, a human being, an individual, or the species, mankind, etc. In plain language, God told his people in Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2, that this is the book of the generations of Adam. The Bible was written expressly to Adam kind creation, more specifically to Israel, one branch of the Adamite race. Other distinct and separate races were also populating the earth and living within their allotted sphere on the earth. Noah and his family, eight souls, according to 1 Peter 3.20, were saved aboard the ark. The apostle Peter, in conformity with the author of Genesis, was concerned with the pure lineage of Noah and his family, whose pedigree is clearly provided in Genesis 5. This did not mean Jehovah disliked the other racial groups, Genesis 1.31 confirms that everything that God had made was good, and of course, everything includes the individual distinct races which Jehovah created, 
God didn't write the Bible to or for the other distinct races. That is precisely why the genealogy of the other separate races does not appear anywhere in the scripture. That Jehovah had both a plan and purpose for the other distinct races is why we know for surety that he directed Noah to take representatives of these racial kinds aboard the ark. God did not allow any of his creation that he classified as being good in Genesis 1.31 to go extinct. If you believe God, you can read the narrative of Genesis 6 and 7 and know for a certainty that the other races had representatives aboard the ark. God instructed Noah, saying, And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark. From Genesis 6.19. And in Genesis 7.15 declares, And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And verse 16 reads, And they went in, male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And verse 22, All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. All oxygen-breathing life forms upon the ark, but outside the ark, died, including the other races, except for those representatives from each race whom Noah took aboard the ark, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life. Dietary Restrictions After the Flood One of the major changes after the flood era was the dietary needs of Noah and his family. Prior to the flood, they were vegetarians, from Genesis 1.29, eating seed-bearing herbs, trees, etc. However, radical changes in the Earth's climate necessitated a change in men's diets. In Genesis 9.3 and 4, we read this, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Noah and his family and their offspring would become meat eaters. Apparently, God knew that the nutrition and environment supplied before the flood now lacked sufficient nutrients, so meat became part of men's diets. The phrase, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, obviously did not include the unclean animals taken aboard the ark. Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 provide a list of flesh-eating creatures declared to be unclean. St. Paul declares in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, that God's children can eat everything that is sanctified by the word of God. We can eat anything that has been set apart by the word of God. Whatever is not sanctified by the word of God or set apart from the unclean, is not fit for human consumption. So, you eat it at your own peril. Consult Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 for a list of clean and unclean animals. What you will find is that all clean creatures are vegetarian, while the unclean are flesh-eating. Eating of blood in any form is absolutely forbidden. From Genesis 9-4, we read, the blood thereof shall ye not eat. And Leviticus 17 verse 14 declares, For it is the life of all flesh, the blood of it for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. Regarding mammals, 
Scripture includes a complete list of those we can consume. Again, they're all vegetarian, grass and plant-eating creatures. And more specifically, all animals defined as clean and suitable for God's covenant people divide the hoof and chew the cud. This ensures that the meat is free of the toxins and dangerous parasites associated with unclean animals. Fowls that clean and appropriate for human food are plant-eating birds, not birds of prey, that feed on flesh. Clean fish have fins and scales. This eliminates a long list of water creatures. I would be remiss if I did not focus on the unclean, toxic swine and the bottom-feeding catfish, as well as shellfish, such as shrimp, clams, and lobster. These popular creatures are especially popular to eat, along with a lot of other ocean creatures, but they are unclean. These creatures are toxic, often loaded with parasites and carriers of disease. You can prey over catfish and swine, but you still may not eat them. The Introduction of Human Government Genesis 9 verses 5 and 6 contain the basis for human government and the preservation of order in creation. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. This is foundational. Life is sacred in the eyes of God, and he declares in Genesis 9-6 that whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Again, Jehovah created man in his own image and likeness. Therefore, life is sacred. The highest function of government is by a judicial decree that calls for taking of life. The sanctity of human life necessitates the existence of government. There must be, of necessity, a duly authorized authority to take the life of another person. It is not possible to build or sustain a social order without some form of government. Just as God intended for the animals to fear man, it is natural for people to fear those in lawful positions of governmental authority. Romans 13 verse 4 says this in regards to a duly authorized officer bearing lawful authority. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. The primary function of government is the protection of life and order of creation. Justification and protection of the righteous, as well as punishment of evildoers, demands responsible governments. 1 Timothy verse, chapter 1, verse 8 and 10 enumerates crimes for which the lawless and disobedient must be punished. Government exists, then, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. The Bible enumerates a number of crimes against God and nature which require the death penalty. Capital punishment is ordained of God for the crime specified in Scripture. Denying capital punishment likewise denies the sanctity of life. People who oppose capital punishment elevate human opinion above the knowledge of God. This is not a moral virtue by any means. Governments are responsible for the defense of the nation, the administration of God's statutes, and the punishment of the wicked. In the U.S., our founding fathers established a decentralized government, or a limited government, 
the federal government is limited to the powers delegated to it by the U.S. Constitution. All power not accorded to the federal government is reserved to the respective states. Under the terms of the U.S. Constitution, the states were sovereign, and citizenship was identified with the state into which you were born. The idea of being a citizen of the United States was unknown in 1787, when the Constitution was ratified. This was a radical departure from the U.S. Constitution, as the Founding Fathers originally wrote and intended. Patrick Henry, George Mason, Edmund Randolph, and several other great American colonial Christian patriots would not ratify the newly written U.S. Constitution in 1787 because they feared that the central government would overpower and simply reduce the authority and sovereignty of the individual states. And we can see that they had a proper reason to be worried. As of 2023, the federal government of the United States is the largest and most bureaucratic centralized power structure in the annals of history. The individual states in the United States have withered, shrunk from their former place of honor and authority that the Founding Fathers intended. Lawful government that functions according to the U.S. Constitution is dependent upon informed citizens who are eligible to cast a vote. It requires zeal and vigilance to maintain a generational model of government that ensures the protection of all God-given rights. Like ancient Israel, the people themselves chose to accept the model of government that Jehovah presented them. Governments have no authority to determine what rights should be accorded to the people. Scripture gives every man and woman the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Lawful governments exist to protect these God-given rights. In a fallen world, governments exist not to give, but to protect and ensure the God-given right to worship, exercise free speech, travel, assemble, work, pursue vocational choices, enjoy due process under the law, and all other rights and liberties necessary for a free society. Governments have no authority to suspend, jeopardize, or diminish these God-given rights. Lawful government exists, then, to ensure the protection of life, as well as other God-given rights. Taking a human life is a capital crime that demands the forfeiture of the life of the person who is duly convicted under due process of law of taking another person's life. The command to be fruitful and multiply children is repeated in God's instruction to Noah. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. This second command given to Noah to be serious about bringing forth children is the key to Adamite dominion of the earth. Without children, the family, church, community, and nation soon are periled. There are horrific consequences for cultures that diminish the conception and birth of children in numbers insufficient to maintain their civilization. The current birth rate in the U.S. among white couples is 1.6 which is substantially lower than replacement levels. More white people are dying every day than are being born. The millennial generation has essentially said no to marriage and children. They prefer to cohabit and use contraceptives to prevent unwanted pregnancies or simply visit a convenient abortion slaughterhouse. Unless this trend is reversed quickly, the landmass of the United States will be populated by non-whites. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit will awaken sufficient numbers of Anglo-Saxon people to awaken to the reality of our crisis, return to God's moral law, 
and purpose to practice separatism in the white populated areas of rural America. The Unconditional Noahic Covenant No account of the Genesis Flood is complete without an explanation of the unconditional covenant made with Noah and his posterity in Genesis 9 verses 8 and 11. And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold I, establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Jehovah entered a covenant with Noah and his posterity that a global flood would never again destroy the earth and all life upon it. There have been endless local floods that have inundated particular regions of the earth, some with tremendous loss of life and property. If this covenantal promise were simply about a local flood, God has repeatedly broken his promise to Noah. Some examples of devastating local floods include the 1841 Indus Valley River Flood and the Central China Flood of 1889 that recorded 3.7 million people losing their lives. The Johnston Flood in Pennsylvania in 1889 killed more than 2,000 people. The unconditional covenant our sovereign God made with Noah was the guarantee that never again would the earth be covered with a global flood. Those who deny the reality of the Genesis flood are swallowing humanism and failing to walk in faith and trust scripture's clear and timeless record. The earth itself records the history of a universal flood in the rocks and strata. To this day, scientists and geologists still find evidence of a universal flood. Almost every major river in the world has flooded, However, none of these huge floods has ever come close to the Genesis Flood. Of this you can be certain. There has never been and will never be another global flood. One baptism by water was Jehovah's means of washing the earth clean of all life. As I stated earlier in the final judgment, God's weapon of choice will be global fire. It is nothing less than amazing to read what the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, says about the impact this baptism of fire will have upon the earth. Its ultimate impact is clear in Revelation 21, which confirms the concept of a new heaven and a new earth that is on God's divine calendar. If the Genesis deluge were indeed just regional, as so many skeptics believe, why would Jehovah commission Noah to build the ark? Why spend such a long span of time to build such a massive boat, when Noah and his family could have just migrated to higher elevations? Moreover, why did God divinely orchestrate the movement of all the animals and other life forms aboard the ark? Why would every member of Adam's race have gathered in the very region where the local flood occurred? Can anyone be bold enough to believe that after more than 1600 years between Adam and Noah, all the Adamites alive gathered within the geographical confines of the supposed regional flood? It's simply preposterous. The Genesis Flood has been and will continue to be a much debated, controversial subject. What shocks me is that a majority of remnant believers firmly hold to a local flood. There are some fence riders, but the controversy continues. Every believer, for conscience sake, 
should carefully look at all the information available and make a stand. I personally accept the testimony of Scripture as being the deciding factor. I accept the literal interpretation of the 86 continuous verses in the narrative of the Genesis flood in the same manner that I accept the first verse in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. It is a fact. Anyone who can read Genesis 1 and believe that our sovereign, omnipotent God created the entire universe and everything in it should not choke on the global flood of Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. We read the Bible and by faith believe the literal words, unless there is clear indication that another use of the words, such as metaphor, is being employed. We read and accept by faith what scripture tells us. We do not understand that we might believe, we believe that we might understand. Faith trumps human reason. We believe the Bible to be the infallible and inerrant word of God. Upon this ground, believers build their faith and biblical worldview. Jehovah sealed his promise with a covenant. If indeed this were simply a regional phenomenon, why would God enter an everlasting covenant with Noah that he would not again use a flood to destroy the earth and all life upon it? Remember, the unconditional covenant God made with Noah's family line, the sign that he would never again destroy the earth and everyone upon it with a flood, the word covenant appears some seven times from Genesis 9, 9-17. God made every effort imaginable to emphasize the importance of this covenant with Noah, like most of the other covenants Jehovah made with his people, he gave a sign for the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9, verses 12-15. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow is a promise, a sign, a reminder, that God will never again destroy the whole earth with a flood. There is no human eye who has not beheld the beautiful colors of the rainbow splashed across the sky. This is the eternal covenantal pledge that our faithful, covenant-keeping God made with Noah and his posterity. Also, keep in mind that Noah and his family had never seen a rainbow flashed across the sky before the cataclysmic flood. Why? Because it had never before rained. The rainbow is formed due to the dispersion of sunlight by tiny water droplets suspended in the atmosphere after a rain shower. White light splits into different colors from the outside edge to the inside of rainbow colors that range from red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. The rainbow is actually a full circle. You cannot see the other half because the ground gets in the way. The rainbow is a phenomenon that was unknown before the flood. Now, however, it's a universal sign which confirmed the perpetual witness of the covenant God made with Noah. Although we all know and are horrified by the Sodomites stealing this beautiful sign of God's covenant with Noah, their depravity cannot steal our blessing. It is a sign of promise, not of pride. 
they fly their pride flag to display their moral depravity before the world. How shameful! What an insult that is to the holiness of our mighty God. The pride flag, celebrating a heinous crime against God and nature, is blasphemy. It is something to be abhorred, not celebrated. Anyone who flies the sodomite flag that celebrates the moral crime of homosexuality is simply committing blasphemy. God will not be mocked. The day of judgment will not be a happy time for those who revel in disparaging the Bible and the truth of God. Remember that the crime of sodomy calls for the death penalty under God's moral law. A Summary Many centuries after the Genesis Flood, the prophet Isaiah utilized this event as an example of God's faithful promise to Noah that he would never again cover the earth with water. Isaiah uses the flood to demonstrate God's eternal faithfulness to his people Israel. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. From Isaiah 54 verse 9. Jehovah's promise to his people Israel is stated in Isaiah 54, 8. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. Believers should never grow complacent because of the covenantal promise of God that he would never again destroy the earth and its inhabitants by water. The same eternal God and the very same Bible confirms that an equally catastrophic fire of judgment is scheduled for this earth and every unbeliever. The Holy Spirit was careful to inspire the Apostle Peter to write of this coming fiery judgment in 2 Peter 3 verses 1 through 14. These verses contain God's plan for the next catastrophic judgment. Peter goes through great lengths to show that God is calling his elect children to a time of sober repentance. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. From 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Peter follows this call for repentance with this stern warning. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. From Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. God took great care to detail his account of the flood in 86 consecutive verses. The Genesis flood ranks right up at the top of the list of the most significant miracles of the Bible, right along with the creation of Adam and Eve, the promise of the Redeemer, the enmity between the two seeds of Genesis 3.15, Joshua's long day, and every other miracle you might add to this chronicle. One could make the case that the only miracles that surpass these are those concerning Christ's miraculous conception, virgin birth, and resurrection from the dead. What magnificent marvels God has done for us! Most of these miracles we cannot even begin to comprehend. Why then do so many professing Christians doubt the plain language of the Genesis Flood and insist that it was regional rather than universal? It's far easier to imagine that some of these other events 
and has more verses to devote it to it. The language of the Genesis record must be read literally. There simply is no wiggle room for those who deny the reality of the Genesis flood. The event of this global flood is just as real as the account of creation in Genesis 1. People who scoff at the preposterous idea of the Genesis flood live in unbelief. They simply reject God's word. Whether they want to admit it or not, the Bible is the infallible word of God. But so many people believe only those parts they fully understand and can explain. They lack faith. Remember this principle. We do not understand that we might believe. Rather, we believe that we might understand later. Faith comes by hearing and believing the word of God. I cannot explain the miracle of the virgin birth or the incarnation of God in flesh, but I believe it with every fiber of my being. The Genesis flood is more than a great story for children. It's not a story, it's an event. Read Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 in its literal sense, and you too will believe and grow in your faith. Do not forget that what you believe about the catastrophic events of the Genesis flood will influence your thinking all the way through Scripture. As long as you limit what God can do, your understanding of God's word will be anemic. This event was not a footnote in history. The cataclysmic flood is an event that belongs in the Genesis Hall of Fame. Finally, I remind the reader that Jesus Christ used the Noah's flood to warn his people of their season that would witness the coming catastrophe judgment of fire. Do not miss that parallel, and we should be afraid. This coming event will eclipse Noah's flood, for it will witness the end of Earth's history. Believe it. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. From Luke 17, verse 26. With this, I humbly conclude this series.